At least 122 Palestinians, including 27 children, have now been killed as Israel intensifies its bombardment of Gaza. The UN has said that more than 200 homes and 24 schools have been destroyed or severely damaged in the Gaza Strip in the past five days. It also warned that Israeli airstrikes could limit residents' access to fresh water due to power cuts and damage to pipe network. Hamas rockets have, of course, also been um, continued to be fired at Israeli towns and cities. So far, they've killed nine people, including one child and one soldier. Meanwhile, so that's that, that's Gaza. Meanwhile, across um, or within um, Israel's 1948 borders, right-wing Jews have attacked Palestinians. Um, this includes some, again, horrific footage. Um, this is, I mean, essentially a lynching in, in Bat Yam near Tel Aviv on Wednesday. Now, we aren't going to show you the whole clip because it's, quite frankly, just too graphic. But here you can see young Israeli Jews dragging a Palestinian from a car and brutally attacking him. According to the Cannes News Network, who recorded this footage and broadcast it live, there were no police present. As I say, we're going to cut this out before the end, but it does it does go on um, to show the mob punching um, a Palestinian man in the face as he lies semi-conscious on the floor. The far-right mob you saw there in Bat Yam also attacked Palestinian-owned businesses, some chanting death to Arabs. Now, within Israel, Jewish citizens have also been targeted, including in the city of Lid, where a Jewish man was stabbed on his way to synagogue. Um, at least one synagogue has also been burned. Um, also in Lid, a pregnant Arab woman was attacked and suffered serious head injuries. Now, as well as unrest across Israel and a battle between the IDF and Hamas in Gaza, we are beginning to see a wave of protests in the occupied West Bank. Now, you can see here footage from the Palestinian city of Nablus. Last night, protests have continued across the West Bank today, with at least seven protesters having been killed by the Israeli military. Um, that's all within the borders of historic Palestine. Unrest has not been limited to that region, though. There are also protests at the Jordanian border and the border with Lebanon. Now, it's reported that Palestinian refugees in Jordan have since breached border with occupied Palestine. That border is, of course, controlled by Israel. Um, I'm joined now by Dr. Yara Hawari, a senior policy analyst at Al-Shabaka, a Palestinian think tank. Yara is based in the occupied West Bank. Thank you so much for joining us there was some confusion last night when the IDF tweeted ground forces were engaged in Gaza. Then they said, actually, they haven't entered Gaza. They're just sending in rockets from outside Gaza. What's your understanding on, on the latest happenings there? Do you think we are on the cusp of, of a full-blown ground invasion? I think it's entirely possible considering the the Israeli political situation at the moment. Of course, you know Israel uh, doesn't have uh, a government. It still was in the, the midst of forming a coalition government. Netanyahu hadn't managed to do that yet. And so, to be honest, this might be the perfect opportunity for him to 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 get that that majority that he needs. Um, we know that the Israeli electorate is quite uh, far right and violence against Palestinians, particularly those in Gaza, is. Uh, to be quite frank, it's 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 a winner in elections. I mean, the opposition figure Benny Gantz, who was being touted as this sort of liberal savior by by the European Union, used footage of bombing Gaza in 2014 in his electoral video uh, campaign. So, you know, it, it's very obvious uh, what the majority of the Israeli uh, public think towards Gaza, and I think it's in it's. 
entirely possible that we we do reach that. Having said that, I I don't think that Israel, or at least Netanyahu, does want uh, a full blown out war, especially considering uh, what is happening at the moment elsewhere across historic Palestine. It's facing um, the Israeli government's facing this huge internal what it calls an internal issue, all these protests from Palestinian communities within 48 within Israel proper, and now as well with all these what they consider threats at the border. So to be honest, Israel can't fight all of these fronts. Um, and so that might be uh, a saving grace for, for the people of Gaza. And I, I sincerely hope that the Israeli airstrikes do stop because what we've heard from friends and comrades in Gaza is that this is the last few days have been the worst bombardments they have ever seen. And, you know, there are people as young as 20 who have seen four or five consecutive wars now. And they're saying that this was the worst. Last night was the worst night that they have ever lived. Um, and, you know, we, we have reports that, you know, from friends that they were sending their last sort of messages, farewell messages to people overnight. So I, you know, I sincerely hope that the barrage does end soon. I want to talk about what's going on inside um, Israel proper, the 1948 borders, because uh, as well as the bombardment of Gaza, I think this is at the moment what's getting the most international coverage. Um, it's often reported as communal or sectarian violence. I kind of want to know if if that's yeah. um, a categorization you, you think is 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 fair. But we showed there a video of of Arabs attacking, or, or sorry, far right Jews attacking Arabs, um, attacking Palestinians. We also know there are Jews who are being attacked in 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 Israel. Do you think? Seeing this as communal violence or sectarian violence really gets what's going on. How should we understand the the violence and conflicts that we're currently seeing within the borders of Israel? So this is Israel's narrative that this is an internal issue and it should be dealt with internally and that it's sectarian. Uh, and one of the reasons it does that is to hide the fact that it has a Palestinian population within Israel. A lot of people don't know that, that 20% of the uh, population of Israel are actually indigenous Palestinians who are... Uh, often labelled Israeli Arabs as a way to sort of hide their, their Palestinian identity. Um, but it's also to obscure the, the reality and the context, which is of a settler colonial state. This isn't, you know, uh, Arabs versus Jews. This is a settler colonialist versus the indigenous people. And the indigenous people are fighting for their survival. And the sectarian narrative also serves the interests of Israel by sort of warding off international intervention because, of course, the, the, the UN and international organisations are sort of heavily involved in condemning things in the West Bank and, and Gaza because they see it as their international responsibility. But whereas it, when it comes to Israel internally, Israel can sort of fend off those criticisms by saying that it's a domestic issue, you know, maybe one of discrimination or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sectarianism, when actually it's not the case at all. What we're learning and what increasingly is becoming understood is that the policies in, in the West Bank certainly are also, uh, the policies that the Israeli government carries out towards Palestinians in the West Bank are also uh, carried out across the Green Line. And for Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is the sort of preferred label, uh, we have lived this, we have known this since our existence. Um, but because of sort of the parameters of international law and that the mainstream discourse, that our story uh, and our community has has often been forgotten and, and erased. 
I mean, this is kind of a background question, but this is being presented as something quite new, um, sort of well, as uh, whether or not you want to ca- characterize it as communal violence. But anyway, violence between communities in in Israel, I mean, particularly most prominently, it seems like far right attacks on on Palestinian citizens of Israel. Is that something which is relatively new or is this an ongoing thing which has only just sort of increased in the last few days? To be honest, it's 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 been ongoing. I think it's escalated in the last few days. We haven't seen this certainly not in my generation. This kind of uh, uh, these kind of lynch mobs uh, to this extent uh, across the country. You know, there have always we've we in Palestine we talk about it as a continuous Nakba, the ongoing Nakba, which of course refers to the ethnic cleansing of 1948. Um, and when we say that, we mean to say that it, it continues. This project or process of erasure has continued, and we have seen it in the displacement of our people, the, the theft of our land, the you know extrajudicial killings, ethnic cleansing, etc. But to this large extent, to have these kinds of uh, settler mobs carrying out lynchings and assaults, and supported uh, by the police uh, and by the security forces is definitely something um, unprecedented in in my generation. Um, But it's also not surprising to us. You know, we have always been on edge that this could happen to us. There have been many points throughout history where, uh, and and recent history actually, where Israeli politicians have talked about wiping us out, that, you know, we're the the cancer in Israeli society, the the surviving indigenous population, uh, and that we need to be either you know, eliminated or we need to be encouraged to leave or or they threaten us with expelling us uh, to the West Bank or, or to Gaza. So it is certainly unprecedented for me, but it's also not unexpected at all. In a way, whilst what's going on is is absolutely terrible, in a way there's there's also sources of hope, which is that the Palestinian struggle seems much more united than it has in in a long time. You're seeing protests in Israel proper, you're seeing protests in the West Bank, um, obviously Gaza are resisting in their own ways, and then now you're even seeing protests you know, in, in Jordan and, and Lebanon. Does this seem to you a more sort of united and powerful form of Palestinian resistance than we've seen for, for a long time? And, and if so, why do you think that's happening now? Yeah, I think so. I, this is just the permanent condition of being Palestinian is because we live in this continuous state of tragedy. We, you know, whenever we see glimmers of hope, there's always something devastating going on at the same time. So we've become very used to it, you know, where there's laughter, tears really aren't far behind. And, and personally, you know, I've been I've been crying and uh, and smiling throughout the last few weeks. I guess it's different for different Palestinian communities in in, in Gaza. Um, the situation uh, is is so devastating. But I do think there are glimmers. The way that Palestinians have been mobilizing across historic Palestine, and I mean, you know, the West Bank, Gaza, 48, which uh, refers to, to the state of Israel, the com- Palestinian communities in, in Israel, uh, and also in exile in, in, the, in the diaspora, um, and and it's pretty phenomenal. We haven't seen this level of mobilization for, for a long time, particularly because Israel has pursued policy, policies, deliberate policies of fragmentation, of social, uh, political and geographic fragmentation. I cannot go to Gaza. I physically cannot go to Gaza. The only way that I can have communication 
with my brothers and sisters in Gaza is, is online, and even that we know is heavily monitored. Uh, so you can't even begin to understand the level of fragmentation that Palestinians exist in. And yet we have these protests and we have people coming out. And let's not forget that the, the spark of, of all of this was Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood in Jerusalem that was, that was facing uh, imminent ethnic cleansing. And people all over historic Palestine came out because they saw that it was a complete reiteration of what they have experienced or what their parents have experienced or what their grandparents have experienced. You know, the, the scenes that, that we've seen, the, the, the videos, the things that we've experienced over the last few weeks remind me so much of what my grandparents told me happened in, in 1948, the lynchings, the, the driving of Palestinians from their homes, the beatings in the street. This is, it's, it's simply a, a reiteration. It's a continuous process. And so the fact that Palestinians, despite this, this continuation of, of ethnic cleansing, of settler colonialism can, can come together is, is, has been incredibly inspiring to me and I think also to a lot of Palestinians all over the world. My final question is, is what are the events of the last two weeks, I suppose? There's been too many of them to list. What effect is that going to have on the internal politics of, of, of Palestine? Um, I know you're based in, in the West Bank. At the moment, it seems like the Palestinian Authority, which is led by Mahmoud Abbas, is concerned that it's going to become irrelevant Hamas, one of the reasons they started sending rockets is because they wanted to be seen as defenders of the Al-Aqsa Mosque when it was trashed by the Israeli police forces. How will the, the PA, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, come into play here? Do you see what, what direction they're going to go in? Are they going to say, we, we are going to join, join this round of resistance against Israel? Or do you think there's going to be a rebellion against them even? I don't think they are worried about becoming irrelevant because they're already irrelevant the PA uh, it doesn't have any legitimacy amongst its own people. Uh, the only friends it has is in the international donor community because they maintain the status quo, because they keep Palestinians silent. They are not a representative body. They're not an accountable body. They're not considered a legitimate leadership. And this, their position and their silence and absence during this uprising further cements that. And I have to say, they haven't even, I mean, they've been absent, but they've also been present on the streets in full uh, security get-up. We've seen uh, in the streets of Ramallah and other places, uh, we've seen them sort of scaremonger protesters. We've even seen them uh, repress protesters. Um, and, and I think they're afraid. I think they're afraid of a grassroots uh, movement that unites all Palestinians because it would solidify the fact that they are indeed irrelevant. And the fact that this comes off the back of uh, elections, which they failed to have, that no one was surprised that they cancelled, because this is, again, it's a body uh, that is well past its electoral mandate, um, and, and no one has any faith in them. I think you asked me if they would join in, and the answer to that is no, they will not join in in this uprising, because this uprising speaks to everything that they are not uh, which is the status quo. They are the status quo. And this uprising is demanding uh, a drastic change from the status quo. Dr. Yara Hawari, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. It's been incredibly insightful. And thanks so much for, for all of your updates. I'm, I'm sure we'll speak soon. Thank you for having me. 
An increase in cases of the so-called Indian variant of coronavirus has raised concerns about England's schedule for exiting lockdown. At least 1,768 cases of the B16172 strain have so far been identified in the UK. And as this government slide shows, rates of the strain are increasing fairly rapidly. It almost looks like they're, they're doubling every week. Now, that's particularly concerning or has led um, scientists to the assessment that the Indian strain or the so-called Indian strain is more transmissible than the Kent variant. That's because cases of all the other variants are decreasing and cases of this variant are increasing. So pretty solid evidence that it's more transmissible. Um, some further evidence that it is and also the effect this is having on coronavirus rates um, can be seen in data from Bolton and Blackburn. Now, in both of these towns in Greater Manchester, these are places where there are um, significant levels of the so-called Indian strain. And you can see here that cases, when they had been falling for months, have begun to start rising in Bolton, at least quite dramatically, in the last week or so, or the last couple of weeks. But I suppose the reason not to be too worried is that, as you can see, the cases are mainly rising among younger people. So that'll be people who, one, haven't been vaccinated yet, and two, if they do catch COVID-19, are much less likely to end up in hospital or to end up um, passing away. Um, so so whilst we're seeing some, some worrying signs, there are also some reassuring ones. This increase in the so-called Indian variant led to lots of speculation that England's unlocking could be disrupted. Obviously, we are due to have a significant unlocking on Monday, probably the most significant one so far. People will be able to eat inside in pubs and bars alongside other restrictions being loosened. We can meet in each other's houses. Boris Johnson said that will still go ahead. None of that is being put on hold. At this stage... There is no evidence of increased cases translating into unmanageable pressures on the NHS, even in Bolton, and infections, deaths, and hospitalizations nationally remain at their lowest levels since last summer. So, uh, and this is a, a balanced decision, I do not believe that we need, on the present evidence, to delay our roadmap, and we will proceed with our plan to move to step three in England from Monday. But I have to level with you that uh, this new variant could pose a serious disruption to our progress and could make it more difficult to move to step four in June. And I must stress that we will do whatever it takes to keep the public safe. So Boris Johnson there saying there's no reason not to go ahead um, with the May round of unlocking. He was less committal, though, um, about June. Um, so in mid-June, we're expected to basically end pretty much all COVID restrictions. He's He hasn't committed to saying that will definitely happen. Um, in terms of whether that will happen, one variable um, is obviously how resistant this new variant could be to vaccines. We now are pretty confident it's more transmissible than the Kent strain. Is it more resistant to vaccines? That's still somewhat up in the air. Chris Whitty, though, the chief medical officer, gave quite a comprehensive answer about the current understanding on this issue, the assumptions that scientists are currently made. Um, so he gave this explanation when answering a question on whether surge vaccination should be introduced for people in their 20s and 30s in areas where the so-called Indian variant is most prominent. 
there's been a debate about this, but the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, who, which brings together all the experts on this, has been very clear on this. Now, the fundamental issue is that we have uh, a finite supply at any given moment in time of vaccine. So if you vaccinate one person, by definition, you're not vaccinating another. Now, what do we, we know certain things about these vaccines. We have very high confidence that the vaccines provide very substantial protection against people dying and people being, uh, having severe illness and people being hospitalized. Less protection, uh, against people having more mild disease and some protection, but less still, uh, against, uh, transmission. Uh, and the expectation is with new variants that if you start to lose some vaccine efficacy, you lose it in the opposite direction. So in a sense, you first lose the very low uh, protection of people having asymptomatic or very mild disease. Uh, then you lose the protection against the more severe disease and finally against the really uh, most severe disease and people having mortality. Now, the reason I'm giving that long preamble is it's to explain why it is that the thing we know this vaccine absolutely can and should do is to protect those who are most vulnerable. And that is very heavily predicated by age with this particular virus. So therefore, if we took people, took vaccine away from groups, let's say in their late thirties and transferred them to groups of people in that who are 18 or, or, or 20, who are at much lower risk of uh, severe disease, the view of JCVI, and I think this is the majority view, it's not an absolute View, but the, the view of JCVI has clearly been this would lead to a net uh, disadvantage overall. So the sensible thing to do is to prioritise the vaccines to those who are most at risk in all the places uh, across the UK, because this the virus is a risk absolutely everywhere. But there are very uh, strong aims to try and accelerate uh, and make easier vaccination in the areas uh, which are most affected by this virus. So it's not that uh, we're not trying to take uh, the, the geographical spread of this new variant, uh, the B617.2, uh, into account. We very much do want to do that. I thought that was both a very good explanation. One of why they're not going to introduce surge vaccinations in areas which are most affected um, by this variant, but also in doing so, sort of explaining what is and what isn't worrying about this variant. So he's saying that what vaccine escape would most likely mean, I mean, the case of any of these variants is that you would be more likely to catch it than you would the original COVID variant. But he's saying they have a reasonable degree of confidence that whatever variant you catch, if you're vaccinated, that will stop you going to hospital and will, will stop you dying. So that the, the most serious impacts of COVID-19, even if um, this, this variant has some vaccine escape, should be mitigated. I think we have Aaron Bastani. How are you feeling about the so-called Indian variant of, of coronavirus? Are you worried about it? Do you think that this could change your assessment? I remember last week we were talking about the unlocking and how we're, we're quite confident that it's going quite well. Has this changed your assessment? I think people, obviously, you have a recency bias. And you think, well, the last time we got bad news from nowhere in a context of supposedly good news was December last year. And we then had a three to four month lockdown. And so that's just going to happen again, isn't it? I, I think we both agree that's not likely. What Chris Whitty said is that's not likely. The worst case scenario is we may need another lockdown, but we will see nothing like the the hospitalisation rate, the mortality rate. And even though there's been a, a major uptick in uh, the number of documented cases of the Indian variant. Of course, there are, there are many more than the documented cases. That doesn't seem to have fed through so far to uh, hospitalizations and a, and a high death rate. Why? Because actually the people getting it appear to be younger. That's a good thing in a way because it shows that 
Um, the, the vaccine is the AstraZeneca vaccine is effective against this particular variant. That's really good. And so it's very much sort of wait and see. I mean, I think, you know, we, and, and again, it's a recency bias. Well, we heard politicians say wait and see repeatedly last year, and that turned out to be terrible. But in this instance, wait and see is very different. It's not wait and see in the context of local lockdowns or, oh, we think people should wash their hands. It's wait and see in the context of we have really good vaccination program, hundreds of thousands of people being vaccinated a day, in excess of 15 million vulnerable people now having two doses. So that's very different when they say wait and see, or even when you and I say wait and see. So in a way, this was this was inevitable. We knew that new variants would come along. We knew that there would be flare-ups, so to speak. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of heartened by what we're seeing so far. But as Chris Whitty said, the sample data is simply too small to, to draw large generalizations and conclusions. I personally think that things should open up next week, but I think people should be aware. I thought Boris Johnson struck the right tone here. People should be perfectly aware that that may go into reverse at some point. Um, but, but I think, I think it's, I think it's worthwhile opening things up and to, and to basically, like you said, level with people. We, we may have to go into reverse, although I don't think that will necessarily be the case. I mean, I mean, we'll see. Like, like everybody's saying, the data isn't that isn't that isn't that conclusive. Uh, it could be very bad. You know, some of the models suggest this could be terrible. But the most likely sort of sequence of events is that it's manageable and it's nothing like what we saw after December. And for me, I don't think we're going into something we like December. There, there have been uh, modelling actually. I think there's one from Warwick University which is suggesting if it were. 30% more transmissible than the Kent variant or 50% more, um, we could have a, a situation worse than than last December. I think that was on the assumption that all restrictions would be dropped, which is precisely why all restrictions shouldn't be dropped. I also don't know what other assumptions assumptions they'd, they'd, they'd made um, in that particular paper. Um, one thing this is changing for me, I think, is how confident and comfortable I feel going inside from Monday onwards, because I was partly thinking, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to wait until I get my get vaccine to go to the gym and to go to pubs, et cetera. I was getting into a frame of mind where I was like, look, there's barely any COVID-19 anywhere, right? I can basically relax. This is making me feel like actually with this more transmissible strain, it could, we could quite easily get into a situation where among the large sections of the population who aren't vaccinated, this does start spreading quite fast, which means I still want to take those same precautions that I've been taking up to now until I've had my vaccine. Um, Aaron, you want to come in on that point very quickly? I mean, I've, uh, the reason why I was a little bit late to today's show is I got caught up in meetings in, um, in London. And I have to say, Michael, I mean, obviously you're, you're living there. So it's kind of your, it's your normal, but I've not gone in there for, for a while. I go in there obviously very infrequently in, in the last year, but today felt really different and it was notably busier. There was a police officer on the underground not wearing a mask. There was a busker singing, which I just found, I, I, he was wearing a mask, but I was just like, this is, ridiculous if this guy's got covid he's he's potentially giving it to thousands of people over the course of a day and then on the train coming back there were two large groups of people nobody wearing masks drinking and like you say michael the data has been so positive for so long all of a sudden you lose all those inhibitions and that's the real worry because this i think this looks really manageable if people don't don't behave like that you know if we wear masks indoors if you keep to the rule of six if you try to keep outdoors as much as possible etc etc so far, the data suggests this is entirely manageable. But, you know, people have also had to be incredibly restrained for a year. So you may have these super spreader events, legal or otherwise, which which create lots of problems. You know, I expect lots of young people over the summer 
to hang out with each other and have massive parties. And that's, that's entirely explicable because they've been subject to, you know, horrendous restrictions for 12 months. But, you know, that's the one sort of black swan event you could say where, or a sequence of black swan events where you have lots of these parties, they're super spreader events. And all of a sudden that does go back to their, their parents and grandparents. Because remember, yes, the vulnerable may be, uh, they've been vaccinated, but it's not 100% efficacy. So if you did get, you know, this sort of ripping through the population again, you would see large numbers of people dying again. Again, nothing like December, but we would start seeing that the present death toll, which is negligible, uh, tick up quite, quite significantly. So I think that's something that's really important. I mean, I almost got into a fight with these kids, you know, there's about 20 kids. And I said, not one of you is wearing a mask. And they started like having a go at me. And I said, well, look, if there's another lockdown, don't complain. But at the same time, I know if I was their age, you know, I'd, I'd be tempted to do the exact same thing, especially if you've been adhering to the rules for a year. We've not been giving the incentives to young people to actually adhere to the rules as, as strictly as they should. We can't just sort of stigmatise them and beat them down. You know, they should be getting, I personally think young people should be getting sort of financial incentives and rewards for what they've had to put up with over the last 12 months. But perhaps that's a, an out there opinion. I'm quite marginal in that respect. One of the questions that this, I suppose, these new worrying statistics about the Indian strain have brought to light is the big question of why we didn't close down the borders slightly earlier. There were obviously so many people saying, look, everything's going really well. We're on track to, uh, to loosen the lockdown, have quite a decent summer, unless a variant comes along which disrupts the vaccination program, which disrupts the schedule we are currently on. That's why lots of people said we should have universal hotel quarantine. The government said no. We actually only put India on the red list a week ago, even though we've known this strain was um, around for a really long time. By the way, the big story here is also like, think of India, man. They had they had to deal with this strain, which was more transmissible than our Kent variant. No wonder you had so many people catching it and hospitals being completely overwhelmed. I mean, we're worried about this now and we've got 60% of, of adults vaccinated. In India, they had to deal with that when they had about 2% of adults vaccinated. So, you know, well, I suppose, what, what can you say other than, wow. Um, I do want to go to the issue of the British borders, though, and how this is a bit of a fuck up from Boris Johnson, really. He got warned. He didn't listen. This question was put to him um, by Sam Coates today at that press briefing and Boris Johnson tried to justify his record on the borders issue um the the what the, the relevant committee was looking at uh, was the threat of variants of concern uh, coming from uh, abroad and at that stage uh, India was not identified as having uh, a VAC a variant of concern so that was why the decision was taken <clears throat> Pakistan for instance I think had uh, I think three times as much uh, of, a, uh, of variants of concern they had in particular the, the South African uh, variant. So that was the, that was the reason for uh, that decision. But don't forget that everybody coming, <coughs> forgive me, uh, from India or indeed anywhere else uh, had to uh, face very, very tough quarantine uh, rules. They had to bring their, they had to uh, self-isolate, they had to produce their passenger uh, locator form and, and so on. They had very, very, very tough restrictions. They had to fill in their passenger locator form. I mean, that sentence is completely ridiculous. Obviously, unless you have mandatory hotel quarantine, these these restrictions basically mean nothing. I mean, I know from people I know well, like the, the amount that people follow that guideline where you have to stay in your home for at least five days after you enter from elsewhere is, is not followed particularly um, strictly. Also, people take public transport from arriving at the airport to their homes. So the idea that there were tough measures 
there were not tough measures. And that's why we're having these, these current worries at this moment in time. We're going to go straight on to our next story. A dawn raid to detain two asylum seekers and potentially deport them has been disrupted and blocked by protesters in Glasgow. Dawn raids are opposed by the Scottish government but are under the control of the UK Home Office. The raids were seen as particularly provocative because they took place on the morning of Eid. Now, we can take you through some footage and um, which shows you exactly how these extraordinary protests developed. So first of all here, we have some footage. This is obviously the, the immigration enforcement van, um, which is being stopped from driving off. It's already got detainees in, inside by neighbours of the people who have been detained. So you've got people there gathering around the van, other people sitting in the street, and that means the immigration enforcement van cannot move on. There are already police arriving to try and manage the situation. Now, that was an incredibly successful move for those 10 or so people you could see in that video to make because after that scene, what you had was call-outs on social media, hundreds and thousands even people sort of arrived to that street and ended up forming a cordon around the immigration removal van. It was not able to move. For the scale of the protest and the type of protest that took place, lots of people sitting down to stop the police getting through, and you can see hundreds of people already outside that van. Now, not long after that clip we just showed you, lawyers addressed protesters and police, saying the only way the crowd would disperse is if immigration enforcement released the two men held in the van. And it was confirmed the protest had been successful when the police released the following statement. In order to protect the safety, public health and well-being of all people involved in the detention and subsequent protest in Kenmore Street, Pollock Shields today, Police Scotland has, following a suitable risk assessment, taken the operational decision to release the men detained by UK Immigration Enforcement back into their community meantime. Um, that decision was announced to the crowd by lawyers present before the men were released. We have an agreement. It is in writing. These men will be released safely. They will not be arrested. There will be no enforcement action against them and I have an agreement that they will then, the police will form a cordon around the van with myself and the two men and then we will be walked to the mosque where they will be released. An incredibly moving image of solidarity. The men who were detained thanking the, the hundreds and thousands of protesters who had prevented um, their detention. Um, now, one of those detainees, Lakvir Singh, spoke to ITV. Do you have anything that you want to say to the people who came to support you today? Thank you very, very much. Thank you. That's all the people. Thank you. Speaking in his native Punjabi, Lakvir then told us what happened. I was taken unannounced from my flat. They barged in and took me into the van. I was anxious and upset, wondering how I would be treated at the detention centre. I'm so happy that my fate brought me to live here in Glasgow, where the people are so connected that they'll come out onto the streets to help one of their own. Another really, really moving um, clip. Now, it's all a clear example of direct action getting the goods and the power of solidarity. What's also interesting is that the mainstream politicians across most of Scotland's parties, other than the Conservatives, spoke out against the raids, very different to what you would likely see if that had happened in 
England. So Scottish Labour, the Greens and the SNP government all opposed the Home Office's actions on Thursday. After the police announced the release of the two detainees, Scotland's Justice Minister Hamza Youssef released this statement. To take this action at any time is unwelcome in Scotland. To do so in the heart of the Muslim community on the day of Eid, where there have been outbreaks of COVID, is reckless and dangerous health and frankly looks like it was intended to provoke. I've spent hours, hours trying to get the Home Office to abandon their operation. First, they passed me off to a civil servant when none of their eight ministers would take my call and be objected after that. They eventually gave us the most junior ranking Home Office minister to speak to the First Minister and I and to say he was unhelpful again would be an understatement. Belligerently told us that they would continue to enforce uh, immigration law as they saw fit. Now I'm pleased and delighted in fact that Police Scotland, who of course have operational independence, Police Scotland have taken the decision in the interest of public safety, in the interest of public health, to release these two individuals. But immigration policy is of course reserved to the Home Office and although these two individuals, and I'm pleased they have been released uh, on this occasion, the hostile environment created by the UK government's immigration policies is something that is simply not welcome here in Scotland. And I will be urging the Home Secretary to speak to me uh, and the Home Office to speak to me and to engage with the Scottish government so that we simply do not see a repeat of these scenes, but more importantly, to tell them that their hostile environment is just not welcome in Scotland. That was Hamza Youssef, the Justice Minister for Scotland. Now, you, you, you probably already um, have recognised that that's a very different way of speaking to the UK Home Office. Just to confirm that, a source at the Home Office told the BBC Newsnight's Lewis Goodall, it is completely unacceptable for a mob to stop the lawful removal of people living in our country illegally. We 100% back the front line in removing those with no right to be here. So a very, I suppose, dismissive, fairly unpleasant in my reading um, statement from the UK Home Office. Now, to discuss um, the protests, I'm joined by Rosa Sali. Rosa was born in Iraqi Kurdistan and moved to Scotland as a refugee when she was 12 um, you were also at the protest yesterday. Rosa, thank you so much um, for joining us today. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, I was at the protest and uh, very overwhelmed by the people uh, organizing and winning. Uh, I think it was a huge big city uh, for Glasgow and throughout the world. I think everyone's looking towards Glasgow. Yeah. What was it like, the, the demonstration? I mean, it seemed to grow sort of exponentially, but it wasn't particularly organised, was my sense. Well, I mean, it couldn't have been organised because this was a, you know, a, a spontaneous protest, really, wasn't it? Someone just noticed a van in the street, put it on social media, and then it spread by word of mouth. And ultimately, you had yeah. you know, hundreds, potentially thousands of people blocking an immigration van. Yeah, I think uh, initially the van was um, stopped by uh, a man called Declan, um, which I've come aware of that he actually was under the van for uh, over eight hours. Um, it wasn't organized in such ways because everything was by social media and people were sharing videos that this is a removal actually happening right this moment. However, people were contacting each other to come along and support and stop the uh, enforcement by the Home Office. 
So uh, that kind of uh, organization actually happened after later on and community coming together. Uh, the neighborhood in that street in an Pollock, uh, uh, in Pollock uh, Shields, they all came together. It's a very multicultural uh, 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 part of Glasgow and different communities live there. And it was just wonderful how people, um, hundreds of people coming together, shoulder to shoulder, standing against the uh, illegal enforcement, I would say, uh, of asylum seekers, because it seems that they didn't have any legal advice, uh, the two asylum seekers. And once we were there, we um, there were a legal advice actually given to the asylum seekers. And we tried to communicate through one of the police officer there at the, at the time to communicate and sign some forms so they can have legal representatives. And you are incredibly well placed to speak about the politics of migration in, in Scotland because you, you arrived in Scotland as a child, as a, as a refugee. As I said in, in the introduction, you, you campaigned as a, as a school child to prevent one of your friends um, being deported. You now work for an SNP MP. You've stood to be an MSP. So you've you really know both sides of this equation. You know the politics of the SNP, the governing party, and you know what it's like to be a refugee in, in, in Scotland. What can you tell me about the politics of, of migration in Scotland? And especially from someone in, in London, from England, watching all of this, it seems like whilst the SNP don't have control of the, the migration system, the politics of, of migration in Scotland is much more humane than it is south of the border. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment? Yes, I think that's the first statement that you've made. Uh, our politics is much different and the SNP, of course, the party that I represent and support, um, I would say we want to create a system that is based on fairness and dignity where humans are treated uh, with human rights um, and there are no raids um, and there are no detention and uh, we have we have we have made statement that we will remove the Gable detention center once we become an independent country. So the SNP don't have control over migration policy. That's currently a competence held in Westminster, but obviously, um, the SNP want it ultimately in an in independent Scotland, but presumably also in a in a devolved UK. If if the UK were to stay together, what would the SNP's policy be? Because you know, lots of the opposition to what happened yesterday. Some of it was. I suppose, somewhat ambiguous. Were they opposing it because it was on Eid? Were they opposing it because it was a dawn raid? Or were they opposing it because they oppose detention and deportations in, in, in principle? The final one would be the more, the more radical fundamental position. Is it your understanding that if the SNP had control over migration policy, they'd stop deportations in Scotland altogether? Yes, I would say that there will be no deportation in Scotland and there will be a humane system uh, based on human rights and dignity. Uh, a system where actually uh, the caseworker would uh, speak to uh, the asylum who's claiming uh, uh, asylum to stay in this country. So there will be more uh, communication between uh, uh, the asylum seeker and their caseworker. So it's more humane, more direct, more communication. At this moment in the current system, there is no communication between uh, the decision maker and the asylum person that's claiming asylum in this country. Um, so uh, there's a disconnect between uh, those uh, the people really in 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 that question. So it, it's very problematic the way the system is set up and 
Unfortunately, I do not believe there will be any reform uh, because I, I have been experienced and you know, I, I came to this country as a asylum seeker. And I'm grateful, you know, because of my friends and my community campaigning for me to stay here. Um, and it wasn't given to me that easily. And um, because of that, I think I see the the failure of the system, the, of how it's flawed and uh, we need to fix it. However, I do not believe in fixing it because of the Tory government of Priti Patel. Um, they they meet. They want to meet uh, targets of deportation, and um, it's it's just numbers to them. There is no human humanity um, in their system, um, and of course, uh, it is a hostile environment they are creating for many asylum seekers. Uh, at this moment, the immigration uh, uh, the immigration rules are becoming more restrictive uh, day by day. Uh, so, um, if you go back ten years ago, uh, people could have uh, applied for leave to remain in this country in on indefinite leave uh, if you stay in this country for ten years. However, now they have uh, extended to to twenty years. So uh, you can see that's just one example. There are many many examples. Even family reunion people of marry abroad, spousal visa. If you're rich enough, you can marry someone from abroad. But if you're not rich enough, uh, then unfortunately, you cannot uh, you cannot fall in love with someone abroad. Uh, this is the immigration system we have in place. And every aspect of it you look into, there's restrictions and barriers. Uh, and at the end of the day, it's people's lives that have, are being affected. Rosa Sally, thank you so much for speaking to us this evening. And also, I mean, you know, well done for participating in, in such a successful protest. Our solidarity goes out to, to everyone who was involved in, in Glasgow on Thursday. Let's go straight on to our next but related story. A leading left-wing member of Labour's NEC has been suspended from the party after a tweet calling for Priti Patel to be deported in the wake of protests in Glasgow, which blocked a dawn raid detaining two asylum seekers. Howard Beckett, who is also in the running to be the next leader of Unite, tweeted the following. Priti Patel should be deported, not refugees. She can go along with anyone else who supports institutional racism. She is disgusting. Now, after posting that tweet, many people commented and responded um, that the tweet was potentially racist or had racist implications by calling for a politician from an immigrant background to be deported. In response, Howard Beckett deleted the tweet and apologised. However, Labour still announced he would be immediately suspended. That's pending an investigation. Howard Beckett spoke to Sky this morning and reiterated his apology for the tweet he sent. I've already issued a personal apology to Pradeep Patel, Adam, as I said. That tweet was removed after 30 minutes, and I issued an apology saying that it was never intended to be interpreted literally. I'm against all forms of deportation. I, of course, know that you could never deport a Home Secretary, but I'm against all forms of deportation. And I apologise to anyone who read that that tweet literally, and I referenced Pretty Patel specifically in that apology because that tweet was wrong. But I do not want that tweet to remove us from the debate about the treatment of refugees in our countries. It is vital that we talk about the most vulnerable in society and the racist behaviour of this Tory government. There was an element of, of disingenuous in it because I don't think anyone thought he was literally saying Pretty Patel should be deported. The, the reason the tweet was seen as problematic was because to call for any person of colour to be deported. It's very close to sort of the language of, of go home. It suggests they have somewhere to be deported 
too. Whether that was his intention, I think it probably wasn't, which I'll talk about in, in, in one moment. The other issue is, regardless of what you think of the tweet, was this done for factional purposes? Possibly. Um, Lewis Goodall from Newsnight tweeted this last night. Um, so he tweeted, Howard Beckett suspended from the Labour Party. Labour source, Keir is prizing McCluskey's cold, dead hand from the Labour Party. Aaron, I want your instant take on this. What do you make of the Ferrari around Howard Beckett's tweet and his subsequent suspension? One word, ridiculous. He said a stupid thing. He deleted it within 30 minutes. He apologised. Great. Let's move on. The fact that this somehow became an internal Labour faction story, when the real story, as we've already discussed, was working class people in Glasgow ensuring that two local citizens, some residents weren't kidnapped by the British state. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's nauseating and it's excruciatingly dull and it doesn't serve any progressive interest whatsoever. We, we have all said stupid things and particularly on Twitter, right? Myself included. And I think if you can't have a politics which accepts that people sometimes make mistakes, then you're not going to go anywhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, if there's a pattern, if, if Howard had said this five, six, seven, eight times, yeah, of course, then you see a pattern of behaviour and you say, well, come on, this isn't good enough. But there isn't, as far as I can see, I'm happy to be corrected, but I've, I've never seen anything like that before. So figure of speech, he's apologised, move on. I had people on Twitter saying to me, no, it's outrageous, he should be kicked out of the Labour Party, white people. And I said, well, look, if you, if you think he should be kicked out of the Labour Party, realistically, if you want to universalise that as a principle, you're not going to have any members left. And I said, well, you think he shouldn't be able to participate in public life? Oh, no, he just shouldn't be in the Labour Party. Well, what, what's the sort of intellectual basis by which you're saying he can't participate in the Labour Party, but he can be in Unite? What, why? Because if you actually want to be serious and adult about this and say this is beyond the, the sort of the, the, the pale, this is impermissible for somebody participating in a political organisation, you have to have thought about it thoroughly. And clearly people like that haven't. I mean, I think there's two issues here, which is one, is it worthy of suspension? Absolutely not. And two, was it a problematic tweet? Because there's lots of people saying there's nothing wrong with that tweet at all. He's clearly saying it because she's the Home Secretary, not because she's of Indian background. Now, I think absolutely, I agree with you, Aaron. This is not this does not warrant suspension. An apology should be more than enough. I do at the same time think whatever his intention, and I'm really I'm almost certain there was no racist intention behind this, even if it is fine to say. Or even if, in a way, it seems similar to say, let's deport Theresa May, which people have said, by the way. I was also persuaded by people sort of showing examples of of uh, graffiti with let's deport Theresa May, people talking about this this chant at, at, at demonstrations, obviously in the first half of the 2010s, where people said, let's, let's deport Theresa May when she was home secretary. That it's not alien to say this. It, it's not clear that he only said this because she is of um, Asian background. At the same time, I think you do need to be more sensitive when someone is of Asian background because racism does exist. And one instantiation of racism is people being, or is an assumption that people have a different home to go to, which was... I, th I think clearly could be made there. So I think bad tweet, 100% bad tweet. Was it demonstrative of the racism, racism of Howard Beckett? No. Is it right he deleted it? Yes. Should he be suspended? Absolutely no. Um, Aaron, do you want a final word on this on this story? Oh, I thought we'd go on for longer, but obviously, uh, obviously it's a short one. No, I'd say, you know, hate, hate the sin, not the sinner. And um, I, I, like I say, I just found the whole thing, I, I found the whole thing just... Utterly absurd. And Michael, the thing is, look, I'm I'm half Iranian. If somebody says something like that to me, 
uh, and they apologize. I go, great, thank you. I move on. I don't hold on. If if you believe me, if and I'm I'm, I'm white passing. If every brown black person held on to every everything like that, everybody would be constantly like ah like this. He said a stupid thing. He apologized. And what's really important, what's really really important, is like I say, it, it's not a pattern. And what what I would sort of criticize Howard for, because I've been saying this has been completely blown out of all proportion, is that he he was he is seeking an elected office at a very high level. He wants to lead one of the largest trade unions in the country. And I think somebody who's running for that kind of role shouldn't be saying that. Uh, and so I suppose we could have a debate where you say, look, if this was just a regular person, a regular person on Twitter, this is absurd. It's ridiculous. It's obscene. We're talking about this, actually. It's obscene, given the sort of the deportation policy and the rhetoric that Priti Patel is responsible for. But the fact he's seeking a very high office within Unite, okay, it makes it that bit more important. But even then, come on. I don't know if we're going to talk about the EHRC, but the political response to it from the Labour Party, I mean, that just shows you that people like Keir Starmer, people around him, don't particularly care about the advice that was given to the Labour Party by the EHRC last year. They're discarding altogether the idea that a disciplinary process should be impartial. Is it, what's the evidence for that? Who, who made the decision? I'm not quite aware of the process. Is, is the idea that the decision was made by Keir Starmer and his team instead of the, the, the disciplinary bodies or whatever it is in, in HQ? Well, I mean, so he, well, like we, do, we need to see the timing, don't we? So he said what he said last night. We then found out through the media he was suspended. He didn't find out from the governance and legal unit, glue. The media were told first, and then he found out. And then you get these briefings to various reporters. So the, the speed with which it was conducted, the fact it was given to journalists first, and thirdly, the, the fact you have a source go on record. And I, I trust Lewis Goodall. I don't think he would just say that if Peter Mandelson texted it to him. Maybe he would. But I think it's somebody who's got some proximity to the leadership. I think you put those three things together. It, doesn't, it certainly doesn't look good in terms of an impartial um, disciplinary process. You know, and normally you get an email. That's what happens, right? You get an email. You've said X, Y, Z. How would you respond? That's what happens. You don't get a kind of public farrago, which is brief first to journalists before the person who's suspended. So, no, I, I, I think personally, you look at this, you look at Jeremy Corbyn, lots of similarities in how they were both suspended and both fly in the face of what the HRC recommended. And by the way, Mike, it's important to say this. Peter Mandelson, on the day that the HRC report came out, the days that followed its publication, Peter Mandelson said, I don't like this. I don't I don't want an impartial disciplinary process. I want a political disciplinary process so I can get, or we, the Labour right, can get rid of people we don't like. Uh, so this shouldn't be a surprise that the, the Starmer leadership, factions in control of the Labour Party, that doesn't mean, by the way, that Keir Starmer's on the phone, get Howard Beckett out. It means people that he trusts in certain positions are driving that agenda, and he's not pushing back on it. Whether that's the gentleman that sits above the governance and legal unit, his name is Alex Barras-Curtis. He is something of a bridge between the leader's office and the disciplinary mechanisms within the Labour Party. By the way, that means his job is entirely at odds with what the HRC recommended. His job effectively consists in politicising the disciplinary process. Doesn't make much sense, does it? I tweeted an article I wrote about that last year earlier on today. In any case, you look at Corbyn, you look at this, come on, this isn't what the HRC was recommending. And... I think it, it shows actually the, the the hypocrisy at the heart of the whole debate over the last several years, which is a shame because we all said, you know, on the day of the publication of the report, not everybody, but in Navarra Media, I think we generally agreed these recommendations are actually pretty useful, pretty good. You know, yeah, you should have a disciplinary process which is fair and equally applied to everyone, regardless of who they are. That's not what we've got, in my opinion. 
very good conclusion um, to that section and to the show. Aaron, it has been a pleasure speaking to you this Friday, as always. It's been my pleasure, Michael. And thank you so much for anyone who is a Navara Media supporter. You make all of this possible. If you are not already a regular donor, please do sign up at navaramedia.com forward slash support. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.